Well, as we come to God's word this morning, let's join in prayer. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks that you have spoken to us in your word, giving us so many images and pictures of what it means to belong to you. Bless us this morning as we come to think about the scriptures and pray that it will do that for us again in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the Old Testament stories that are told to us about the prophet Elisha, it's this one in chapter 5 that's probably the most well-known. The story of Elisha and Naaman, the Syrian commander. Now, you'll notice, and I'm pronouncing his name, Naaman, and not the traditional Naaman, after doing some research on the internet on the topic. It's kind of hard to believe that it's just over 10 years now since the civil war in Syria began. 10 years since we saw those images of the terrible devastation that the civil war brought about and the terrible suffering that came with it. And while that civil war has long faded from the news, the impact of that civil war still remains, as do the soldiers of the Syrian army. And that's just where Naaman fits in. Not just a soldier in the Syrian army, but at that time the commander of the Syrian army, a country who are out-and-out enemies of the people of Israel. He is front and square in our text this morning, occupying the spotlight, so to speak, as the text records his healing from leprosy via this next miracle performed by Elisha the prophet. Now, before we look at this event in some detail, maybe a question that needs to be asked from the outset is this. How was it that the healing of a Syrian commander, as important as he was, even rates a mention. After all, Naaman was no Israelite, and he was a leading persecutor of the Israelites. Don't you think that a little odd? Maybe so, but it surely highlights that something of the blessing that God gave to his people, Israel, through Elisha's ministry, actually overflowed to the surrounding nations. It was not just for Israel alone that Elisha was called into the limelight to serve as their prophet, just as his contemporary Jonah was sent far away to the Assyrians to also bless them, despite the fact that they too are mortal enemies of God's people. It's a pattern that we see too in the ministry of Jesus. Though he came as the Holy One of Israel and their Messiah, Think how often the gospel stories relate to us that it was the Gentiles, such as the Roman centurion, or the Samaritans, such as the one who was a leper, who sought him out and were blessed in doing so. So such an occasion such as this Gentile seeking out a blessing from Israel's prophet may seem odd for that time, but not odd in God's overall plan to bless all the nations. Now, if it's so that the first likely readers of the stories of Elisha were God's people living in exile in Babylon some two to three hundred years later in a pagan and hostile environment, it's likely that the questions that would have been going through their minds would have been these ones. Does God still care for us? Is he still God? Will his promises still come true for us even while we are in exile? 
And so it would be stories like this one we're looking at this morning that would give a resounding yes to that question, both for them and also for us. Though things are tough, God is still in charge, not just of his people, but of the nations, and the healing of Naaman the Syrian would be one more piece of evidence of that. And that's how Jesus understood the story when he mentioned it in Luke chapter 4. There at Nazareth, battling with the unbelief of his hearers, he reminded them that God's blessing came to a pagan outsider like Naaman, bypassing, as it were, many lepers in Israel at that time. Of course, his hearers didn't take too kindly to that suggestion and wanted to stone him for it, but Jesus was just being consistent with what this story tells us, that God always intended to broaden the salvation he was going to give to his people to include others not from the Jewish line. Just as Rahab the Canaanite was saved, just as Naomi the Moabite was saved, so too was Naaman the Syrian, who came to confess the truth about the living God and show by this to all Israel just how wrong they were to chase after other gods. So this morning, let's consider these four things about Naaman and consider how these have importance for us. First, in verse 1, we see the scourge of Naaman's disease. Despite his high and honoured position in the sight of the Syrian people, this valiant soldier and commander of their army also suffered from the dreaded disease of leprosy. This man who had made it to the top of the tree in his world, this tough military commander who exercised great power, who no doubt had it all, power, courage and probably riches to match, a man who had made it in terms of his world, he had this very one serious problem, leprosy. Like the word cancer is in our day, leprosy was the feared word of his day, especially when his condition had proved to be incurable. No doubt he'd gone to all the doctors, he'd visited all the magicians and religious leaders, but no one could heal him. For all his money and all his power, he was helpless. His life would literally rot away as his flesh was slowly destroyed and he would die a slow and painful death. And of course, the one place that could help him out was far away, both geographically and spiritually. Elisha, through God's help, could heal this sort of thing at the drop of a hat, but Naaman was a pagan and the barriers separating them were by all means insurmountable, humanly speaking. There was no likely way that he would ever dream about turning to the God of Israel for help, and nor was it very likely that Elisha would lead a mini-mission into Syria. Of course, as we look at Naaman, we are naturally drawn to think of ourselves, and the terrible plague eating away at our souls worse than leprosy, leading us away from God with symptoms seen in everything we do, sin. Lives led with no reference to God, lives 
empty of gratitude for his goodness, lives filled with ourselves at the centre. And the final consequence of this disease of sin is to be cut off from God's presence forever, for in his justice he cannot have anything to do with sinners like you and me, set in our own sinful, hard-hearted ways. And worst of all, this disease has no human cure. No matter how good we may seem on the outside, sin, like leprosy, does not respect class, intellect or upbringing. It affects us all, says Romans 3.23. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Second, we see here the source of Naaman's hope in verses 2 to 4. Into that desperate situation steps a young Israelite slave girl who gave her master that hope. wonder what you would have done if you were this young slave girl. One moment you're minding your own business, maybe drawing water from a well in your father's village on the borders of Israel and Syria, and the next you're thrown on the back of a horse and carried miles away to a foreign country, forced to serve a foreign mistress with no hope of ever seeing your homeland or family again. One response to that, might have been to simply abandon old ways and beliefs and become Syrian, like her new masters. But it appears, although we're not told very much, that even though she was far from home, yet she still believed that her God could do the miraculous through his prophet. When she heard about Naaman's leprosy, her remark that the prophet in Samaria could effect a cure was only small, but it turned the tables of the story. Had she remained quiet and held her tongue, maybe nothing would have transpired. And yet in speaking, she also took a risk for what would have happened if Naaman had gone to Elisha and returned in the same condition. But there's more, isn't there, in verse 1? Did you notice who it is who is behind the events of history and the wars between Israel and Syria? And Naaman's success? It's God. The writer says that the Lord had given victory to Syria. It was the Lord who, in his sovereign control of these events of history, even of pagan nations like Syria and pagan commanders like Naaman, was at work here. Who do you think was sovereign in Naaman's leprosy? Was it not also God? And so it was the Lord's guiding hand that brought this servant girl to be in Syria in the right place at the right time, just as it was to bring Naaman to Elisha to be healed. God himself had been working this out through the most unlikely of witnesses and the victory of Naaman's successors. And so what the Lord asked of her in the place he had placed her was simply to be a faithful witness. That's how God brought hope to this hopeless situation and what he continues to call us to do as his children, to bear faithful witness. So that as Peter says, we ought always be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. As the old hymn says, Speak just a word for Jesus. Tell how he died for you. Often repeat the story. Wonderful, glad and true.
Third, note here in verses 4 to 14, the moment of Naaman's opportunity. Help and hope was at hand for Naaman, but it almost went wrong. While he headed south to Israel with a whole truckload of cash, perhaps with a certain expectation of how things would turn out, when he reached the king of Israel in verse 7, it almost came unstuck when the king concluded that these enemies from Syria had come on a pretext for creating a war. It's worth noting in passing how sad this picture is. Here was Israel's king falling into despair because he had neither connection to God nor the prophet. Contrast the king's lack of faith with the servant girl's confidence in the Lord's ways. All the king had to do was direct Naaman to Elisha, but the sad truth here was the king had wandered so far away from God that when an opportunity for extending the knowledge of the one true and living God came before him, he was unable to do anything of consequence. After all, when a living faith is abandoned, so also is hope, leaving nothing but despair. But thankfully, where there is faith, there is also hope, seen in the fact that God was at work through his prophet. And so when Elisha heard of this despair of the king in verse 8, he sent word to the king, he sent word to the king to send Naaman to come to him. And so Naaman dutifully came, probably bemused, but still with high expectations. After all, he was only second in charge to the king of Syria. But that bubble soon was popped. When Elisha's servant came out, and told him to go and wash himself in the Jordan River seven times. And that's where and when Naaman responded in such a way that almost ruled him out of the picture altogether. Verse 11, Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. His high expectations were clearly not met not with all that money he had with him to pay for the best treatment. But his response might also suggest that he had come with the belief that all would be done according to his terms. And an attitude like that, especially when it comes to approaching God, is always bound to fail. Because you cannot do that with God. If ever he is going to save you, it will be on his terms, not yours. You might have all the money in the world, but that won't buy anything from him. He might also have the most outstanding credentials, but they won't impress him. You cannot even say you deserve anything from him. Now, to do so would be pure arrogance. No, Naaman would have to learn he had to humble himself before God. To obey the prophet's word. And Elisha did it this way to make it crystal clear that this was not his work, but God's. And God's way is always better, way better than our own thoughts and ideas. And what was Naaman's reasoning about not wanting to wash in the Jordan? Surely it would have been better to stay in Syria and wash in those rivers. After all, they're cleaner and nicer 
Why should I wash in the smelly, dirty Jordan? But that wasn't the point, was it? Those rivers may well have been better than the Jordan, but that wasn't what he was asked to do. Pride has to be swallowed. The Lord's word has to be obeyed. Healing for him would come about no other way, just as salvation for any of us can only come about by humbling ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Are there many people that you know like Naaman? I don't know for sure, but I know I was one of them. It's not that I didn't know the way of salvation. It was that I would not submit my will or my life to Christ. It was a battle of wills for a time. And praise God, he won. Pride is always a hard thing to swallow. And it took a further gentle rebuke from his own servant in verse 13, who had more sense to trust the prophet than his master did, to move Naaman to action. So down he went, into the Jordan, just as he was bid to do. And there he found what he had sought, that money could not buy or he could not earn. Fourth, consider in verses 15 to 27 the fruit of Naaman's submission. The rest of the story follows through with the contrast between the responses of Elisha's servant Gehazi, who saw this as an opportunity to get some funds to line his own pocket, and Naaman's response to this miracle. Let's follow through with Naaman and I'll leave you to ponder what became of Gehazi. See, there was more going on in Naaman's life than a mere physical healing. Consider these. For starters, Naaman had a new conviction in his mind. His words were, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. It's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? Up until that point, he had worshipped Idols in Damascus. Now he knew that there was only one true God. He knows the truth about that God. Then also note, Naaman had a new attitude in his heart. At the end of verse 15, he was willing to give all his wealth to Elisha as a gift of thanks, not to purchase anything. This, Elisha declined. This, Elisha declined, unwilling to allow any link to be made between Naaman's giving and the cure he'd received. His salvation, his healing, was all by grace, which cannot be earned. But Naaman's willingness to part with his money shows a new attitude. He knows he cannot buy grace, but he is willing to show his gratitude, quite the opposite to Gehazi. If Naaman in this story is the outsider who comes in, then Gehazi in this story is the insider who falls out. Then also, Naaman has a new resolve in his conscience. According to verse 17, he requested that he be allowed to take some earth back to Syria so he can build an altar to the God of Israel there, suggesting he was willing to stand for God in his own pagan society. He knows too that it may mean compromise, but his desire is to worship and honour God 
no matter the cost. So that's how Naaman the Syrian found healing, but also blessing. He came to Elisha as a pagan leper, but left as a worshipper of the one true God. It's a remarkable transformation. And as I said earlier, it's the one that Jesus picked up and told to his Jewish hearers to make this point, that though there were many lepers in Israel at this time, yet only Naaman, a Gentile, came and sought healing from the prophet of God. Think on that carefully. Let it sink in. Naaman, the Gentile. And in that central theme of this story, perhaps the reason why we note it and remember it above all the other stories about Elisha is that fact. Naaman didn't belong by birth. That is to say, he was that outsider who was brought in. He was not a covenant member by birth. And yet here was God working in the world through the servant girl and through the prophet Elisha to bring a complete outsider and a feared enemy into his kingdom that he might share in the blessings of his covenant people. Again, let's remember that this has always been God's plan from the beginning of time, revealed ever since he called another pagan by the name of Abraham and gave him promises that are still yet to be fulfilled, that affect the whole world, every tribe, every kingdom, every language group, every nation. See, God's purposes have always been wide and broad. It's true that the gospel came into the world through the Jews, but it was never limited to them and for them. And that's what Jesus told his hearers in Nazareth that day, that got them so angry, along with other times when he told them, that salvation is not for those who think they have a right to it, or when he told them that he did not come to call the healthy but the sick. The Jews never in their wildest dreams expected God to want to save the Gentiles through one who came from their race and was the Messiah, because the self-righteous have no need of God who saves, but sinners do. And that's the amazing plan of God being worked out here in this story and now in these days. He is gathering together through the gospel news of Jesus a people from all nations, a people who don't enter the kingdom by being born into it, a people who are sinners but at the same time are a people for whom Christ died and died to save are people who now love him from the heart because of his saving work. Yes, if you believe, you too benefit from this amazing rescue plan of God that we see in miniature in the story of Naaman. Hope is never lost with God. He is at work so that all kinds of people who have that much more fatal condition, that which the Bible calls sin, can be saved. That's the hope we can have and the hope Naaman found. And that image of Naaman being healed through washing in the Jordan reminds us of that hope, that salvation is through washing and being cleansed by the blood of Jesus. 
Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus, not the good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that hope is one that's found all through the scripture, and it comes to those with empty hands, and those who humble themselves before the Lord. For only those who humble themselves before him will receive from him. And the only cost involved will be the loss of pride. For the rest is freely paid for and given by grace. Do you know this next text? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's true. It's what we are taught. And I invite you to know it, maybe for the first or the hundred and first time this morning. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Will you humble yourself before the Lord and receive what he wants to give you? There's no other way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we bring thanks to you this morning for the story of an outsider who was brought in, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid for our sin, bringing all who belong to him into your kingdom. It's not by our wealth or our birth or anything that we have done that we claim any standing before you at all. But it's your grace giving to us what we do not deserve. Thank you for this reminder this morning in the story of Naaman that we are washed clean through Christ as we humble ourselves and fall at his feet. Accept our thanks. Help us to put our hope in Jesus and him alone, knowing that there is only that one way of salvation and there is no other name given among men and by which we must be saved. So we pray this through Christ Jesus and for his sake. Amen.